Yesterday I was teaching our first membership class in Swahili. Right? Not that I speak Swahili, but we had a membership class in Swahili, and I've been to Africa before, and there's a lot of power outages there. I've been in India, same thing. So yesterday I was, I was downstairs going through the class, and the power went out. So I looked at our class, and I went, Welcome to Africa! And they all started laughing because that's what happens all the time. So if we have some power things that have been going on with our power grid, don't worry about it. God's word is faithful, and it will go forth no matter what. Uh, but we are in the book of Acts, chapter 2. And I know there's a lot of things that are going on right now in our culture that have caused uh, people a lot of fear and consternation. Uh, This past week was a tough week. Uh, Looking at the shooting in Las Vegas, I mean, many of us saw it. We read the headlines about that, people trying to figure out what's the motive. Why would someone do something like that and unable to find it? I mean, people just going to a concert and then their life is over just like that. We see a lot of confusion, a lot of fear that's going on in our society right now, whether it's political turmoil, uh, I mean, people just being very angry in their, their interactions with one another. It's tense. There's racial unrest. There's political tension. There's gender confusion. We have terrorism. We have just seemingly random acts of violence that are going on, and people are wondering what's going on. What are we to do? What's, what's the solution? And you have politicians arguing back and forth, back and forth, and that will continue on until Jesus comes again. People just debating back and forth, back and forth on what are the solutions. And one group claims it's this, another group claims it's that. But as Christ followers, we know that it really comes down to the human heart. It comes down for the heart transplant, a heart change of God's Spirit working in and through His people to help orchestrate change in our society as well. I remember years ago, I read a quote by a man named Oswald Chambers, who is famous for writing a devotional at the beginning of the 20th century called My Utmost for His Highest. And in that devotional, he he made this comment. He said, he goes, sometimes you'll read that prayer changes things, which is true, but it's more likely that prayer changes me and I change things. In other words, when we lay ourselves out before the very face of God, and we lay ourselves vulnerable before the Spirit of God, God begins to change us from the inside out, and that helps me change in my interactions with other people. And it's very, very true. And as we see with the violence that's going on in our society, I believe that God has already given an antidote for this sickness and poison that we see around us, and that's his church, which is created for this very purpose to live in the middle of a sinful society, extending the hope of life and being his ambassadors and pleading with people to be reconciled to God, but also doing acts of righteousness so that people will see Jesus in us. We're to be out there in the world, not withdrawn from it, fearful of how we're going to be polluted. That's a wrong mentality. People are saying, oh, I, 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 I'm so afraid I have to pull back because I'm afraid of what's going on in the world. It's the very reason Jesus put you there. That's why he created us. It's to be out and be salt and light in the middle of a fallen world. In other words, he has given us, his church, his body, his people, to be the antidote to our society. Now, what does that look like, though? What does that look like as a body? What does that look like corporately? What does that look like individually in our own hearts and our own minds? Because that's where it begins. Before we can be that, we have to lay ourselves down on the altar of God, asking him to perform spiritual heart surgery to us and change us to help us be the people that God wants us to be. 
And that's what we're going to look at today as we examine what went on in the early church and how God had transformed them. And through examining them, I hope that we can see a bit of ourselves and see how we can follow their practices as we look and see and understand how they made Christ the priority of their lives and how they were changed and in other, and, and how God used them to change those around them. But before we go any further, let's ask God by His Spirit to bless us, to speak to us, to cut us, to transform us, that we might be the people he wants us to be. So let's take a moment and pray, shall we? Oh Lord, our God, we come before you once again, knowing that you are God and we are not. Lord, you know the depths of our sin. You know our thoughts. You know the attitudes of our heart. You know our inward and outward rebellion. And, oh, Lord, our God, we lay ourselves before you. We offer ourselves up as living sacrifices, asking you to use the sword of your word to be a scalpel to our souls and remove the cancer of unbelief and disobedience that is keeping us from fulfilling the mission and purpose for which you have made and fashioned us. So, oh, Lord, our God, today I pray, no matter what someone is going through in their married life or in their relationships, in their workplace or in their homes, what they're facing from a health standpoint or what they're dealing with uh, financially or a crisis in their work, whatever it might be, Lord, remake us and shape us to show us how we are to be the antidote to this lost world as we continually set our eyes upon you and abide in you and have your words abide in us. So speak to us, and may your spirit be here now, working in the hearts of minds as your word is being preached. Lord, you said it's through the foolishness of preaching that people are saved. It's through your word being spoken that lives are changed, that bones are rattled. So Lord, rattle us. Draw us near to yourself. And may the spiritual world in which we inhabit as physical creatures May the powers of darkness be afraid as your word is being spoken. May they retreat, but may your name receive great glory, and may the angels in heaven be continually mystified as they see your working in us, we who are but living dirt. So glorify your name now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So let's jump right in to our text. Actually, before we jump into our text, let's take a moment to set the stage once again. Uh, for those who missed last week and didn't um, see what was going on, and our, this book that we're in is called the Acts of the Apostles, otherwise known or better known as the Acts of the Holy Spirit. These are, what's, these are the events that are happening or transpiring right after Jesus ascended into heaven. The Holy Spirit has now come upon his church, which is known as the divine helper, a promise, uh, a promised helper that Jesus had spoken about and had told that if he did not leave, then the promised helper could not come and it would multiply his work throughout in his, his people. And so we saw that the Holy Spirit had come upon 120 of Jesus' followers as they were together in one place and they began to speak in other tongues and create Uh, created uh, such a stir that the greater community was hearing this sound and they showed up and they were hearing people speaking in other tongues. And we said it's it's like someone uh, that speaks Mandarin going to the Appalachians and hearing someone who's basically a hillbilly redneck speaking fluent Mandarin. 
That's what was going on at the time. And it's freaking people out. And they're saying, what is God doing? And we saw that Peter stood up and addressed the people and said, this is the inauguration of the last days. That God now is pouring out his spirit. He's not dwelling in a physical place, but he's dwelling in his people, his followers. And he is using his followers to reverse Babel. In other words, where people were divided. Now God's people are united. And he is orchestrating events to save humanity that will come at the end of time. We're seeing we're in that end time now. It's been inaugurated in that it was kicked off then. And remember, it might be 2,000 years since then. It seems like a long time to us, but it's really short in the mind of God. And so we've seen them, uh, Peter speaking to them, calling people to repentance. And remember, he is addressing a crowd of I mean, at least 3,000 response, so there could have been more that were there. Without amplification, these were people that he was just afraid of um, like 50 days before. And now he is standing in front of them saying that they were the ones who were guilty physically, spiritually of, of crucifying Christ. And now he is calling them to repentance. 3,000 people respond. That would have been an awesome, awesome service that day. 3,000 people respond, and they're baptizing left and right as people are declaring their allegiance to Jesus Christ and identifying, choosing to identify with him. And now what we have is a description of a day in the life, not a day in the life so much, as a snapshot of what was going on in this early church as they were meeting throughout Jerusalem. And so we're getting pictures, snippets of their life now that they are following Jesus Christ. And it's, it's really a picture of a young church. Remember, these people hadn't heard as many sermons as you had. They hadn't, they hadn't got to hear audio stuff. They hadn't got to see any of the things that have you had. They are new believers. They are meeting together. They're excited about this new relationship they have with Jesus Christ. And they're being in community together. And it is fascinating to see what was going on then. And it's a call uh, to us as well to see how we are to live and to be. Because I'll tell you right now, in the middle of our modern, suburban, western world today, what we see here is completely against what we, our daily experience is. As I interact with, with folks from different countries, and, and the, the continual critique I have, especially not just from different countries, people that I've seen in the city, and they have this different kind of life than suburbia. Because in suburbia, people are so independent and privatized that they don't know how to interact and fellowship the way that God wants them to do, which is a real black mark on the church. And God is calling us back. I mean, we're busy. We're, we've got so many different things that are going on, so many good things. But I think God is calling us to pull back from some of those so-called good things and reprioritize because we're doing so many good things that God gets left out. God gets the leftovers. He gets the scraps. God's sitting at the kids' table. That's what we do. And we're saying, no, no, God needs to have primary place, the place of honor in our hearts and in our lives, and that needs to be seen in how we interact, not just with him, but with one another. Because remember, your walk with Jesus can't just be your, meaning it's not just you and Jesus and nobody else. It's to show how you walk with Jesus, but that pours over in your relationships to other people. That's why he puts you into a church. But we've made it so you've just got you and Jesus, it's me and Jesus, and we're okay. That's not what the, the, the scripture shows us, is that we're to be with other people, to love one another, encourage one another, admonish one another, forgive one another. That's it. The one another's are throughout Scripture. The entirety of the New Testament is pregnant with this concept of one another. 
And so we see that we are to be this body that God wants us to be. And by looking at this church, we're going to see that God is speaking to us in our time and how we are to reprioritize our lives if we claim to be followers of Jesus. Now saying all that, let's jump right in into our text today. Verse 42, we start off. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now let's just stop there for a moment. The word devoted in Greek, it's a fascinating word. It means to persevere, to continue steadfastly in something. And here it means to give constant attention to a thing. Now what are we devoted to? That's the question. Before I answer that, let's talk a bit about where our devotion is currently. Where is your devotion now? And I don't mean, I mean, you're going to forgive yourself. You're going, to, you're going to say and give yourself the benefit of the doubt. But if someone were looking at your life as an outsider and they could examine the entirety of your life, where would they say you're devoted? Where is your devotion? Job? Family? Career? Money? Mindless, brainless activity? Television, the internet, Instagram, Snapchat, you're just continually making a story of your life? Is it vanity? What is it? Is it the relationships of maybe you're wanting uh, a spouse and someone to love and you're going to pour out everything into that one person? But I guarantee that once you, you start going down that road, and it's a good thing to want to be loved and have someone love you, but you will find yourself utterly disappointed if you put them in the place of God. Because they're, they're putting them into a place that's, I mean, we can idolize anything, even the, a spouse or the concept of a spouse. So we have to have God at the center. What does that look like? I mean, we're devoted to many things, but are we devoted to God? Are we, we're devoted to music. We're devoted to sports. We're devoted to being liked, to be accepted, to get more followers. I can't help but think we're devoted to many things, but I'm not sure if God is one of them. It's my contention that many of us in the modern Western church put God at the kid's table of our spiritual life. Are we devoted? And what makes us think so? If we are honest and really look at what we are devoted to, we would find that it's not God. And if we are to be the antidote to our sin-filled world, then we are to follow the example of the early church who was made up of people who had been truly changed by Jesus. And through them, we see that we are to devote ourselves to the things of God. That's the first point that you can write down. It's a pretty obvious one. Devote ourselves to the things of God. If you're playing pastor pick a point right now and you're trying to guess ahead, you already probably had devote. I know some, I know some of you already play this game, by the way. You try to guess what point I'm going to go to next. I'm going to start throwing some U's, Z's, and Q's at you soon. See if you can figure those out. But devote ourselves to the things of God. Now, in prepping for this message, our preaching team had a discussion and looking at the church in Jerusalem and contrasting it to the church in Laodicea. Remember, there were many of these different early church plants that were going on. And we don't know, we're not familiar with these terms very well, but we started to look at some of these early churches, and one of them came up was Laodicea. And we started comparing the church of Laodicea, which is mentioned in the book of Revelation, as Jesus is speaking to what is known as the seven churches. And he's speaking to these seven churches, and he is, he is, in other words, rebuking each one, for the most part, for things that they had done. They had missed, or they had turned away from God on. And these seven churches are to represent churches as a whole without the world. In other words, they represent seven different types of churches that we see within our world today. But he, if we were to juxtapose 
the, the church of Jerusalem with the church of Laodicea, we're going to find some pretty amazing things. That this is a church that was wealthy and that Jesus talks about. They had everything outward, but they lacked the inward. And I want to share this passage with you in the book of Revelation chapter 3, verse 14 through 22. This is Jesus speaking at the end, I mean, uh, in the book of Revelation. He says, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. Because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you, literally vomit you out of my mouth. That's a pretty vivid description. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing. I don't need anything. I got it all. Not realizing that you are actually wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and to salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and open the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Can we go back a couple of slides there just for a moment? Uh, And I want to just address here for a moment what we're seeing and what he's talking about. When he says to the angel of the church in Laodicea, right, it's the, in other words, the, the angel that was watching over this church. He goes, I know your works, you're neither hot nor cold. Now there was water that would come into Laodicea, and there was, it could be either be really hot or really cold. If it was really hot, it could be used for cooking, things like that, cold for different things as well. Saying that it's lukewarm, meaning it has no usefulness whatsoever. It's good for nothing. That's what he's saying. He's saying, you're not hot, you're not cold. You are good for nothing. It doesn't mean, as some say, that you're either on fire for God or you're turned away from God and you're in between. That's not it. It's, it's you're not useful for God to use. You're good for nothing. He says, I know your works. You're neither hot nor cold, uh, nor cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold nor hot. Because you are lukewarm and not hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, and this is the part I want to try to elaborate here, I'm rich, I've prospered, I have everything that I need and need nothing, not re- realizing, and he says, you're actually spiritually wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And then he goes on in the next slide. Let me elaborate on this. He goes, I counsel to buy from me gold refined by fire. What he means by that, and we see that gold refined by fire is righteous deeds that are done in the name of Christ that will endure judgment at the end of time. That's what he was referring to here, so you may be rich. And white garments, this is righteousness. Because really they thought, hey, I'm great, I'm good. And he's saying, no, you're actually naked. You're shamed because your life is not Represented, you're not dressed in the garments of righteousness by living a righteous life. You think you've got it all. You think you've got all the followers. You think you're popular. You think people look at you, think you've got everything. But let me tell you, at the end of time, it's only God's thought that matters. And God's the one that's going to undress you and show you for who you really are. And then he says here, so you, um, you need to then... The shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you could see really the reality of your own condition. Uh, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Let me tell you this. 
If you, think you're, if you say you're a follower of Jesus and you're in disobedience and you're not experiencing the discipline of God right now to bring you back, I would say you're not a real follower of Jesus. Because he says if he loves you, if you're really a child of his, he's going to discipline you. He's going to bring you back. He's going to orchestrate the circumstances of your life to wake your butt up. Seriously. That's what he's going to do. I don't know how else to put it. It's because you have become so disobedient in what God has. You're just playing with God, thinking it's okay. I could give him scraps. It's all right. As if God's this dog that's happier with the scraps from your table. That's what many of us have been doing. And he's saying, I stand at the door. In other words, there's an opportunity for you to repent and get right and invite you into my life. I mean, invite, have you invite me into your life to transform you. And see, I look at this church juxtaposed against the church in Jerusalem, and I ask ourselves, which church are we? Snap. Because this is us. This isn't us. I mean, if we're honest about ourselves, we're prospered, we're rich, we're, we're wealthy. I know we don't think we are, which is a bad problem, by the way. It's a bad problem. We were making a comment the other day. We were talking as a staff, and, and one of the, the teaching pastors made a comment. He goes, I don't understand it. We have people walking in the door with their heads hang low and these frowns on their face. Where, face, where's the joy? Why is it, why is it that I see us blessed with so many things, and yet I inter- interact with Dr. Ganesha Pandey, who's in India, and I, I, I'm, uh, I met him in India. He actually stayed in my house here in the United States, didn't even sleep on the bed, slept on the floor because he's so used to sleeping on a floor. He lives in a 10 by 20 foot concrete just uh, area with tin that goes three quarters of the way down. He has 10 orphans that he takes care of, no running water at all. He has to go, I mean, uh, three miles to go get food back and forth. He says we have to get home at night and we want to get home before, before sundown so the tigers don't get us. And I went, back up. Did you just say Tigers? He says, yeah, and at night we pray that the scorpions and that the snakes don't get in. And here's a man that I see joy in him. Where's ours? Where is our joy? It's because we've let everything else crowd in. We've got to learn to to wean away the things and not listen to the lies of the world. And we have so many lies of the world that are pulling us in so many different directions. And we want to do what's right, but we're doing so many things we don't know how to say no and intentionally limit ourselves any longer. And we need to reorient ourselves to really devote ourselves to the things of Almighty God. That's what the early church did. That's what this church in Revelation did not do. Now, we're to be devoted, but devoted to what? First of all, it's to the apostles' teaching, and which is and becomes God's Word. It becomes known as the the New Testament, uh, the canon of rule of law, rule of faith. In other words, we're to study God's Word. They sat there and they studied. They wanted to understand. When's the last time you studied God's Word and wanted to understand it? Some of you got dust on your Bible. I don't know how that can be. I I don't get it. I'm sorry, I don't. I don't don't understand. I understand we go through, you know, uh, ebbs and flows. But when I, when I came to know Jesus, man, I wanted to know God's word. Man, I was thirsty. 
I still do this day. I've been studying this for over 20 years, reading it through over and over again, and I haven't even begun to exhaust or understand it all. And the more that I drink, the more that I commune, the more I want to know, the more I'm overwhelmed at the very presence of God and what he's doing and understanding that this world is passing away. But he who does the will of God will abide forever. This is the warm-up act. This, is, this isn't the main stage. This is a preparation for eternity, which goes on forever and ever and ever and ever. And I see that more and more. And I become more and more saddened as I see the world. But they're studying God's word together. Are you studying God's word? Are you, are you not just individually studying God's word? Are you going with other people and laying yourself out to interact with other people studying God's word? This is what small groups are about. Of being a part of a small group where someone can talk into your life and not just read and study the word, but let the word study us and talk about what God's doing in your life and learn and what God's doing in your life and praying for you and coming alongside you to show you the love of Jesus. Are we doing that? You need to be in a small group. I would really heavily, heavily encourage that. Is that to get out of your comfort zone, to step in and be with other believers, to study God's word together. Let's continue on. Notice else what they did. They devoted themselves to the fellowship. Now, the word here for fellowship in Greek, because remember the New Testament was written in Koine Greek, is koinonia. It's a specific word indicating a specific kind of fellowship. The term is further emphasized by the definite article, the, the fellowship. It's a specific kind of fellowship, an intimate fellowship found with those who are united in Christ. It's a very deep friendship. But what is this fellowship and how does it happen? It might seem trite, but it's true. It happens when we begin to spend time together. Now, I know that seems silly. We have a very hard time with, because we're so busy doing everything else. We have stuff for the kids, soccer, basketball, football, band, math club, and then there's our men's and women's groups that we are a part of. Every evenings are filled, too filled to spend time together. The problem is that we've placed a greater priority on those things. We feel that we can't deny our children or ourselves something because we have to fulfill our potential. Potential has become an idol. We've become too focused on what we think we can be. At what cost? We've committed all kinds of sins at the altar of potential, which is one of the reasons we're so stressed. We're trying to do it all. Instead, we need to build a Sabbath of rest into our lives. Do you rest? You know why I I recommend Sabbathing to people? taking a day and letting it, just letting it be quiet is because it is a time testimony to your soul that God is God and you are not. You know, it's interesting. Out of all the faiths in the world, and I could be wrong here, but everyone has a sacred place. But it's within uh, beginnings of Judaism and then carried on into Christianity um, and, and in other parts of, I mean, it's permeated into the different faiths, but it was originally what you see within Judaism that built the concept of not a sacred place, although that was there, but a sacred space of time, which is a, a way of saying God's in control, I'm not. And I'm going to build this day to him, not to all my activities, not to getting all my household projects done, not to go into this game, to that game. It's the Lord's day. And my house... Uh, I, have a, I have this uh, chalkboard in our mudroom, and I, I, I put a verse on there every day before, we, uh, before I take each of the kids to school. I have four trips I make. The kids are in four different schools. Okay? And at each time I have each kid stop and read it if they can. <laughs> read the verse of the day. 
And it's, they say it has the day of the week and it has the, the date. But I also put on there for Sunday, it doesn't say Sunday, it says the Lord's day. This is God's day. I want them to understand that. This is God's day. This is a time to set apart for God. Now, are there times that we're going to have things come in and situations and circumstances of life? Yes. Again, remember, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. But it's the purpose is to find rest for your souls. And some of you are like, I can't do that. Well, you're saying that God is not powerful enough or not the priority. And he won't honor you if you honor him. Can you build that sacred space? into your life, to rest. And it means that's when we spend time together, fellowship, to talk about God's word, to encourage one another. More and more, as it says in Hebrews, as the day, that day of judgment, is approaching. But we need to spend time together. I was reminded of this even more recently as I was talking with someone in our small group who came out from the city of Chicago, and they said, uh, when we came out here, it felt like we had a culture shock said it was such a culture shock. We were involved at a house church. We got in people's lives. We're fellowshipping with brothers and sisters. We, we spend this time together, and it was wonderful. We come out here, and everybody's running out the door. It's like, I got to do this. I got to do that. I got to do this. But are we willing to spend time together, to listen to one another, to take time to be quiet? That is the knock, by the way, that many of the other cultures that we interact with have on us. We don't know how to spend time with people. We have to reorient. I know we're to live in the world, but we're also not to be of the world. We need to be the antidote to step out and be different than the world. Now, notice what else was going on. They were devoted to the breaking of bread. Scholars are divided between this being a simple act of eating a meal together or whether it's referring to communion, also known as the Lord's Supper. And because the term is employed to describe both uh, throughout Scripture... And it's difficult to believe, however, that Luke had in mind here, because Luke is the one who wrote by the Spirit the book of Acts, here an ordinary meal um, because he's placing it between two religiously loaded terms as the fellowship and the prayers. I would think then that the term is an intentional meal, whether it was communion or whether it was a general meal, because sometimes communion was seen a part of a greater meal. We can see that there's a principle here that we're required to sup together. It's not a term we use very often. Uh, It's an older term, but it means sup. It means eat together. Now, that might seem silly, to say such a spiritual thing as sup together, but it's very real because you see without the New Testament that eating together meant acceptance. That's why Jesus caused the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees to be in such an uproar because he dined with tax collectors and prostitutes because it meant acceptance, it meant love. It was an intimate table fellowship. Now, the withdrawal of fellowship also means it means rejection. And that's why in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where Paul is admonishing the church, he's talking about believers that are continuing on in sexual immorality. He says, don't even eat with such a one. This is a person who is unrepentant, that's continuing on in their sin, and that claims to be a believer. You're not to eat with that person. You're to pull away. That might seem harsh in our very tolerant society, and we want to show the love of Jesus. But we see that we're, this is, one, we show the love of Jesus, and we sup with those who are unbelievers. Now, remember, this is unbelievers. We eat with those to show that, we're, that God wants to have a, long, have a relationship with them. For those that are doing wrong and unrepentant, that claim to be believers, that's your withdrawal. But we see here that we're to sup together, to eat together. There's something amazing about eating with people. Because you learn a lot about a person when you eat with them. Um, you learn about their, their passion. You learn about their family as they start talking about recipes and, and how they came to know different stuff. I mean, think about this. You do this, right? What's that one family recipe that you absolutely love? You know what that is. 
you have that meal and you think about it and you start sharing your history. And, and there's something about eating someone else's food and having them eat your food, especially as we are a multi-ethnic church and you eat someone else's food, that really means a big deal to them. And as they laugh at you because your tongue is on fire, that's what happens. Because we have, we have uh, Burmese brothers and sisters and they just put gasoline in their food because I just want a lot of mats and oh, it's so hot. But, it, but it's good because they laugh and we enjoy one another and they do the same for us. It's great. But we need to eat together. And we're kicking around the idea and talking about it and some people have been sharing about it, about even having some potlucks and having international fellowship meal, meals and people bringing foods from their different cultures. But we want to do more of this up together. So we see that concept within Scripture and God's calling us to do it. And we're to devote ourselves to the prayers, which means simply seek God in prayer. Pray with one another. Pray with believers. Rebel against the status quo of the world. Ask God to invade our lives. Ask him to invade and save unbelievers. Beg him to bless. Pour out your heart in prayer. Intercede for others and commune with him. God turns us into praying people. Do what you need to do. I mean, that's what I want God to do is just turn us into praying people. Do what we need to do. Now, can it be said of us that we're devoted to seeking God in prayer? As many of you know, C.S. Lewis is one of my heroes in the faith. When he began to grow in popularity and his books were being published around the English world, he would receive letters from all over the world with many of them asking for him to pray for them. He took the request very seriously, and he took certain times of the day to retire from company just so he could pray for all the requests that folks had sent to him. And he would send them all responses, by the way. He didn't drive. Uh, he had a full teaching schedule. He was writing books, and he was receiving letters from all over the world, and he was responding to each one. This is before email. This is before electronics. This is before texting. And he's responding to each one. And he took their request very, very seriously. And he would retreat. If he was with a group of people, he'd said, excuse me, I have to go, to, I have to excuse myself for a period of time. And then he would go and pray for those requests. Now, he didn't drive. He had a man who acted as his own regular Uber driver. And they got to know each other quite well. And the driver told the story that Lewis got in his car and said, Morris, I'm sorry, I can't talk for a quarter of an hour. I need to go do my prayers. He would just spend his time in prayer in the back of that car, praying for different people. And I'm asking, and I'm hoping that we can devote ourselves to prayer. We're to devote ourselves similarly, praying on our knees in the morning, praying in the shower, kneeling by your bed, and pray uh, for your children at night. Pray before you go to work. Pray with your spouse. Pray at the stoplight. Pray at work. Pray as you are making breakfast or dinner. Pray when you're in line at the grocery store. And when we pray, we'll find that the things and people that we thought were impenetrable icebergs of unchanged actually become butter in a frying pan, melting under the heat of God's Spirit, working in people and situations. Now, I want to skip over verse 43 for a moment. Focus on verse 44. We'll come back to verse 43. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. It's pretty simple. The believers were together. There was a mutual commitment to one another, not just jumping in randomly. They were devoted to knowing God and being part of this new interdependence so interdependent that we don't know where they would be. If the, um, I mean, we're to be interdependent, depending on each other. And if we're to be the antidote to the world, then we need to be dependent or depend on each other. Depend on each other. Now, we don't like that. We like to be independent, depend on ourselves. And this isn't a healthy independence um, or a desire, of a prideful desire, or, or a lack of personal responsibility. That's not what this is either. Um, but there is an interdependence a godly interdependence 
And we have to remember that if we are a spiritual family, we're dependent on one another, stick by one another, help one another out in life, especially in times of trouble. And I know that there are many of you who do not live near family, and the church is to be your family. That's what we're to be. But which means you need to be here. You can't have them expect people to be your family if you're not with those people to get to know them, especially within the small groups, because it's hard in a setting like ours. We have so many people to get to know in different services, but in your small group, that can happen. And if you're not feeling that in your small group, then we need to have a conversation. But they were depending on each other. Now, if we're to depend on each other, then it requires us to hear the needs of others. Hear the needs of others. And we need to also be honest about what we need. We need to be aware of that. We need to be able to hear what's going on with other people. And in our church, we need to be able to hear no matter what's going on in their personal life, and their work life, being able to sit and listen. That's an art that is so lost in our world today. The art of listening, having conversation. I know I fail at this all the time, and I'm asking God to remake me, to be able to listen to the cries of other people. Just in our small group, my, my small group is, uh, we have different ethnicities in our small group, and it's been interesting seeing things from a different perspective, especially as we have things going on politically right now in our culture. There's so many different things going on, and, and rather than me just hearing what's going on in the news and formulating my own issues, I get to see things through their eyes, and it causes me to really wake up and see what they're going through and their struggles, especially of those who come from different cultures or they might be from a different race than myself, I get to see things through their eyes. But that wouldn't happen unless we were together. And then I could sympathize, I could empathize, I could pray for them, I could learn from, I could share my perspective, and then we build a great relationship together and help them. Because we need to hear the needs of others. Everyone's wanting to offer up their opinion, just go online for a little bit. But instead, just sit and have a conversation rather than take a verbal grenade and put it online and watch everybody fight over it. We need to take time to hear one another. We also must take time or seek to hold our lives with an open hand. Now look at verse 45 for a moment. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Hold our lives with an open hand. In other words, we have to be able to willing to give up. When's the last time you sold something to give something to someone else or help someone? Now, you could just do it out of pocket. I mean, we don't want charity. There is a way of doing it in a way that can demean a person. But there's another way that can affirm the dignity of the person that's there. But here, they're giving the proceeds and helping other people in their fellowship. And we have people with needs in our own fellowship. So we need to hold our lives with an open hand saying, you know what? I don't need this stuff. I can give it away. I can help out other people. I can sell it and, and give to the greater mission or ministry of the church. That's what happens, by the way, with Ananias and Sapphira coming up. They'd sold a field, and they said that they were giving this to the proceeds of all. They wanted the status that came with it, the honor, but the reality was is they kept part back for themselves, and they were lying to God about it. So we need to be able to offer ourselves up. What can you give up? What are you holding on to? What are you trying? I mean, we're trying to build and compete with everybody else around. Be an antidote. Step out and be different than those around that you're trying to keep up with. Show that you have a different priority than they do. Let's hold our lives with an open hand and say, Lord, take it as you wish. Take and direct it. Take this from me. I know that's hard to do. It's hard for all of us. That's what God's calling us to do is to hold our hands open, saying, Lord, take and do with it as you wish. Instead, too many of us are holding on. And as we hold out our lives with an open hand, we need to be able to help as we are able. So they sought to meet the needs of those around. How about us? Are we willing to be generous to help? How about on our finances? 
You know, our stats right now say that only 50% of those who consider VBC home are being generous in a financial way. That's not good. And I would say sometimes even less are being generous with their time. We can't help those around us if there aren't resources to help with. And that's what God has called us to do. Now notice in verse 46, that they were day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. Raised in Judaism, the temple was there at the center of everything, but it also ended up being a large enough place for a bigger crowd to gather to discuss and learn about Jesus. And this lasted until the first persecution of Christians developed, causing Christians to be dispersed from Jerusalem. However, they always met in homes. And I believe that we are too as well. We're to practice hospitality. Practice hospitality. And this doesn't mean, by the way, of showing off everything that you have and making sure that your house is completely perfect for everybody else. That's not hospitality. The idea is welcoming people into your home and showing them love as you do so. And some of you are saying, well, I'm ashamed of my home. I get it. I mean, there's things that you have, things that are open that aren't fixed that you can't afford to fix right now. Who cares? Ultimately, the best fellowship, some of the best fellowship I've ever had were not in great homes of grandeur. They were there because of the people that were there showing love to me. Now, if you can do that, then you should. And why aren't you? Why not? My house isn't big enough. What I've seen, I've been in rooms of people in different countries where it was about, about as big as this microphone to that chair. And they had eight or nine people crowded in there praying. Let's rethink this. Come on, let's be different. I, I really mean this. Let's, let's be different. Let's show hospitality. Where does it show hospitality? I, I was talking to a, a friend of mine who's a Ukrainian pastor. He actually pastors in Bolingbrook. And he said, when we were kids, we would have strangers show up in our home because they were under the communist persecution, communist rule. He said, mom, I knew when someone showed up, we had to go to a different room because mom and dad were letting out our bedroom to other people. And we had people in our house all the time. Other believers coming alongside, people we didn't know, but we were giving them housing as they were going to minister. And they're, and they're sharing their lives. Are you, are you willing to do that? Open up your home. Why not? If God's blessed you with it, you're to be a steward of it. You, actually, you might actually own a home. <laughs> and when I was in India, I, I, shared this, I remember sharing this when I was uh, with Scott Cap. Scott Cap showed up. Uh, he had his iPad, and he was showing it to people. And someone's like, is that your house? Is that your family? He said, yeah. He goes, is that your house? You have a house? You have a house? He said, yeah, I have a house. They said, well, whose car? Is that your car? Yeah. Who's the other car? He goes, that's my car. You have a car? Two cars? That sounds silly to us. But why do you think God has blessed us? And do you think that blessing is going to last? Let me ask you that. Do you think that blessing is going to last? It just has to go like that. I'm telling you, you have no idea how fast it can go. There are times throughout the enti- in Scripture where you see people going, wow, we had this, we had this, and a kingdom goes down in a moment, in a night. It's gone. And that could happen at any time. God is holding us by the mercy of his hand. And what are we doing with it? What are we doing with what he's given us? We're not satisfied. We want more. Oh my goodness, shame on us. Forgive us. That freaks me out. It really does. I mean, people, you might think I'm nuts, but just look at the scriptures. I'm, I believe God when he says different things in his word. I, I totally believe it. And if we think that we're going to be exempt from that and it couldn't happen, I pray that I hope, I mean, I pray that I don't see that you be proven wrong. I pray that God is merciful. So we're to offer up our homes in hospitality to other people. 
Step into other homes. This is why we want small groups to meet in homes. Not just a small group, but doing life together. Sharing lives in the unprogrammed moments. I think that this is happening, by the way, but it needs to happen more. Invite others over and give them permission to come over to your home. Give them permission. And if we're to do what has been laid out for us today, then it's going to take courage for us to dare enough to follow. This is going to take some spiritual chutzpah. If we're to be the antidote to this fallen world, then it's going to take courage. It's not an easy thing. It's easy to say, but it's hard to do. How do we do this? First of all, it requires us to step out of our comfort zones. It means crossing barriers of class, education, personality, background, experiences, race, language, uh, whatever it might be. Step out of your comfort zone. If we can't cross our comfort zones, how can, reach others, how can we reach others or demonstrate the reality of the gospel in our lives? Step out. Secondly, stay the course. Here's what's going to happen if we do this. We're going to find failure. In the first two, we're going to trip over it. We're going to be awkward. We're not going to like it. And, and we find that opening ourselves up to others is painful and too hard, but don't give up. Stay the course. It's like learning to ride a bike. You're going to fall a few times before you learn to get it right. Do we think that was easy for the early church to do? It was hard for Peter when the Gentiles were brought in. He's like, I got to go in this Jew's home. Man, it smells weird. <laughs> They're cooking some stuff in here. I don't know what it is. Remember, he's like, you know, it's not lawful for Jews to go into home, but God has shown me that you're accepted. He stepped in. He crossed cultures. That's a big deal. We don't understand this very often in our culture. That's what God has called us to do, is step out of our comfort zones. Secondly, I mean, actually, we're to stay the course, and we're also to share our faith. Now, how else was God adding to their number daily, those who were being saved, if people weren't sharing their faith? Evangelism, conversation, becoming a spiritual tour guide, whereby we share Jesus with them and invite them to look at your life. See, we've got this impression, and I don't know where we got this from, that we're our spiritual used car salesmen, that we have to get people to buy Jesus right away or we lost the deal. Instead, we're a tour guide. Come and see. Come and see. Come and see what God has done. Come and see what God is doing in my life. I invite you on a journey with me. Look at my life. Look at who Jesus is. See how God has transformed me. He's working on me. I'm a work in progress. I'm not complete yet, but I want to tell you what God has done. And I want you to come and see who Jesus is. And invite them on a journey to see Jesus with you and through your eyes. And not just through your eyes, but finally for themselves. Then in my experience to know who Jesus is. Share a faith. For crying out loud, they share their faith. That didn't just happen that 3,000 came to faith in Christ. They were people who were also sharing their faith as they're going around. Because it says there, and day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Day by day. Are we seeing that day by day? And why not? God, why aren't we seeing that? Go back to verse 43 with me for a moment. Ah, came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs being done through the apostles. Ah, came upon people before the apostles did their thing. Ah, was inspired because of what Jesus had done on the cross. He was bringing people together to display the unity that he has with his Father and with the Spirit. Awe came before the miracles. Although the apostles did their miracles, apparently miracles that they could do, we couldn't duplicate in the same way. But their miracles were highlighting and authenticating 
that they were working with Jesus. They were ministering in his name. And I look at verse 46 and 47, and they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Savor Jesus' work. See, they were savoring what God had done. They were in awe at what God had done. They saw what Jesus had done. They saw the Spirit being poured out. And they received their food with glad and generous hearts. They were savoring what God was doing. They were praising God, having favor with all the people, acknowledging of what he was doing. One of the greatest stories in Scripture that I've really admired over the years, and I've heard it preached different times, was these uh, lepers that had all been come to Jesus and they were crying out afar off. They suffered from leprosy and they were, they were uh, crying out for Jesus to have mercy and Jesus says, go show yourself to the priest. And on their way, uh, as they were going to the priest, they were healed, changed of their leprosy. And it says, one went back who was a Samaritan and Jesus looks at him and says, where, where are the others? Went there nine? Why only this Samaritan? Why him coming back? And he's giving praise to God and acknowledging what God has done. For many of us, we're just like the other, the other lepers. We run off. We don't thank God for the change he's made in our lives, but we're to savor that and pass that on to other people. And when we do that, when we really savor what God is doing, we see God working more and more. They were acknowledging his work among them. We're grateful for it. Praise God for it. And God gave them favor with all the people, believers and unbelievers alike. But the work of Christ was so prevalent within them and they were sharing their faith verbally and through their lives that God brought many people into the church. Verse 46 reads, And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. It's a present participle in Greek, and it means that they were being saved, being transformed. It's not finished until we get to heaven. God added to the church. They became part of the body. They committed together and became members of this group. We're to commit ourselves together in membership. Commit ourselves to doing community together. Are we devoted to the things, to God and the things of God? That can't happen first if you don't know him. How do you know him? You have to believe in what Jesus did on the cross for your sins, that he died on the cross for your sins. He took his sin, your sin, and shame upon himself. I was reading a a work this past week talking about the scripture. It says, for all have fallen short of the glory of God. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And many in Greek say the word sin means miss the mark. And yes, it does mean that. But when you look at the greater context, it's talking in the term of honor. It's saying for all have failed to honor God as God. And presently falling short, presently not honoring God as God. That's what it's referring to. And God is saying, I want to be honored in your life. And I'm showing the depth of my love for you for what I did on the cross for your sins. That I knew that you couldn't give me honor. So I'm going to to display my glory. I'm going to show the depth of my love. I'm going to take all of your sins upon myself and be the substitute for your sin. I'm going to take upon myself what is deserving you. I'm going to die your death. I'm going to be buried in the tomb. And then I'm going to rise again showing that I am victorious over sin and shame. And I'm going to give you my new life. I'm going to give you forgiveness. I'm going to take away your guilt and your shame and restore and renew you to be with me both now and forevermore. Amen and amen. That should get a hallelujah. Are we devoted to the things, to God and the things of God? Do we know him? 
Do we want to become devoted? Then we have to trust in Jesus. If we're to be the antidote to this sinful world we live in, it takes taking a step to follow, one that we can all take as his spirit enables. A step to follow in obedience by belief is seen in baptism. A step to commit to others to help expand the kingdom of God in the world. Do you believe? Are you a part of this movement that the devil can't stop that is the antidote to society? If not, don't wait. Be a part of it today. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, our God, have mercy on us. Lord, we are rich. We have prospered. We have so much. When we look at the rest of the world, knowing that we have food to choose from to eat, clothes to, different, clothes to wear, homes to be in, beds to sleep in, Lord, we are amazed at how you have blessed us. And we know it's not because that we were so much better than anyone else, but you and your mercy showed your love and your favor upon us. And Lord, please, Don't treat us as our sins deserve. Forgive us. Restore us. Renew us. Help us to truly be your people. Help us to truly live as antidotes to our sin-sick world, stepping out and showing the love of Jesus, sacrificially giving ourselves as we see evil being perpetrated all over the world, as we see the world getting worse and worse in our country. But we know that other countries are already experiencing it and have been experiencing it for quite some time, that they see war each and every day. They know what it's like to fear. Lord, encourage them. Show the depth of your love and your grace to the middle of this, to, to those all over the world, no matter where they might find themselves. And Lord, remind us again that we are your people, your children. Discipline us if necessary, but do not let us continue on in our, dis, our disobedience. But renew us, make us right. Cleanse us and help us truly to extend the word of truth to those who are lost in the middle of darkness in this world. And Lord, if there is anyone here who does not know you and they want to put their trust in you, I pray that they might call on you right now and they might say, Lord Jesus, I know that I am a sinner, but I believe that you died for me. Lord, I receive your gift of salvation and forgiveness of sins. And Lord, I thank you for it. Lord, I pray that you make them and transform them into new creatures. And for those that are continuing on in their rebellion, I pray that you grant them the repentance that leads to life. Show them the light and life of Jesus Christ. Lord, please help us to be bold and courageous. Help us to step out in faith, to live this life that you have called us to. Lord, no matter what's going on around us, and you know our busyness, you know our struggles, you know our stresses, but Lord, show yourself to be sufficient and tear through all of the facade of busyness that we seemingly, seemingly have to live with. Show us the reality of who you are. Forgive us when we fail. Pick us back up and help us to walk close with you. In Jesus' name, amen.